Welcome to the Aquademia Podcast. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Aquademia Podcast. This is one of our bi-weekly advocate session episodes where we take 10 with the Responsible Seafood Advocate. I'm here, as usual, with the advocate editor, Jamie Wright. How's it going, Jamie? Good as always, Sean. Thanks. And we're doing something a little bit different. We've only done this like four or five times, (laughs) but we're already changing things up a little bit for this week, uh, doing something a little bit different. Jamie had a cool idea, so why don't you tell him what we're doing this week? Well, we're going to talk to Steve Sutton. He's the founder and CEO of Transparency. This is a, a land-based indoor shrimp farm in California, the, in the Los Angeles area, not far from downtown. This business was founded not long ago during, I believe, during the pandemic era. We'll get all the details here in mm-hmm. a second. But, you know, he's had some successful harvests. And after building a robust local demand for the product, uh, Transparency is uh, looking at moving into more permanent facilities that will be able to produce a lot more shrimp, grow the business significantly. So uh, Steve is on the line with us now. Welcome, Steve. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks, guys. It's Monday, so a little bit of everything today. <laughs> yeah. No, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. We were just saying, it's, this is the best Monday we've had in a while. So. Yeah. <laughs> it was good to run into you in Boston at Seafood Expo. It's a big show, crowded hours, and I just happened to run right into you. Um, I, I don't remember what day it was. They all kind of meld together. But when you told me about what you're doing, and especially where, you know, I was thinking, wow, this is this is the kind of guy we need to talk to get him on the podcast. I just, I know that the, the whole, f- we're farming fish in the city thing isn't really new, but you know, L- LA isn't really known as a seafood town as far as supplies. And before I go making a bunch of wild assumptions about the LA food scene, which I know nothing about. Well, I'd how love would to you- hear your assumptions about the <laughs> LA food scene. <laughs> yeah, I make lots of assumptions, <laughs> but how would you describe LA as a consumer market for seafood and, and where are you fitting in? Yeah. Well, when it comes to assumptions, uh, we're doing a lot of things that kind of aren't being done. You know, some of this isn't new, um, especially on your podcast. Some things are though. And so we do a lot of assuming because there's nothing else that we can do. So you're, you're in good company there, I hope. Um, when it comes to LA, you know, I, I put this business in LA um, for a couple of reasons and people thought uh, it was crazy. Still think that it's crazy. And I kind of partially agree with them, uh, <laughs> surely because of the cost, you know, the cost component and the mm-hmm. fact that really hasn't been done, at least not in recent times. Um, and so it was hard, it was hard to get it permitted. But when it comes to the, the reason I put it here, which speaks to your question about the market for seafood, uh, it's just so diverse and the sheer volume of people, you know, within, within 30 miles, it's like 15 million people plus visitors. So, you know, a 30 mile radius. So uh, that combined with San Diego being a few million people to the south, You've got Santa Barbara, you know, in the hundreds of thousands just to the north and everywhere in between. You've got a really diverse group of people culturally um, and and shrimp or prawns are eaten worldwide. Right. So people eat them raw in Thailand. They eat them, you know, cooked in Africa. Like people eat shrimp in no matter what culture they're from. So that's kind of the beauty of it. And also as a business, the fallback. Um, you have a lot of different uh, avenues for sale. So you, you can sell live you can sell um fresh whole intended for grilling you can sell it intended to be processed and put in pasta so i think one of the things for me was the diversity of like fallback options if if hey restaurants closed i didn't know that was going to happen but if it did well we had retail um and we still had like direct shipments we could sell some live so I, i approached it as a diversity but also really more than anything it's it's a pretty progressive area a lot of people 
there's a good amount of disposable income. Um, and you have people who try to vote with their dollars to change the course of the world, especially when it comes to the environment. So I think that's really why I wanted to be here. Uh, it's not a terrible place to live either. And the weather is nice. Um, <laughs> yeah. Steve, can I, yeah, can I interrupt you real quick? Steve, yeah. Steve, are you originally from Southern California? Or was this specifically chosen just uh, as a business decision? This was a business decision and partially personal because uh, I was single at the time and I liked the weather and the, the people are, are nice looking. And I was, yeah, I tend to have <laughs> met a young lady who's a doctor and become my fiance. So that part of it worked out and the business is in progress. Great. Congratulations. Yeah, I'm second that. Well, yeah, Boston's not quite California. That's where we met, but uh, especially the weather during that event. But that, that feels like a long time ago um, already. I don't know, like the last month was really, a lot has happened. Yeah. Um, but like Steve, like I, I was, when I met you, like I, you know, I meet a lot of people in this line of work who are bringing new technologies, new ideas to the business, some from outside the industry. And I've kind of labeled some of them as like a startup type. So you have maybe typically a young, confident individual, maybe from tech, biotech sectors, they, the common thing is they really believe in what they're doing, and, and uh, but maybe some of them you get the feel of maybe taking too big of a bite or going public with your idea before the revenue model set or but things like that. I didn't get that impression from you at all. <laughs> you you were pretty <laughs> matter of fact about the opportunities and challenges you're facing, and you're starting small, testing, proving your skills, the system before you chase the big numbers. And so that startup type, that startup type personally, and the startup label for the business, does that fit for you? Yeah, I mean, I guess we started up a business, so technically we're a startup. <laughs> but we, you know, I took the approach of, I grew up in upstate New York. My dad had a tree farm. So he started with a shovel and a wheelbarrow um, in the 70s. And he now has a multi-million dollar tree nursery. He's got you know 1,500 acres of trees planted for landscaping. And, you know, that's what I was exposed to working from age 12 um, was just, you know, stay within your means and, and grow through hard work. But, you know, make more money than you spend. <laughs> so that kind of old school way of thinking, it, it can definitely be limiting when it's time to grow like now. Um, but that's that's what I knew. So I also have been involved in aquaculture for more than 10 years and have worked for other companies where that's not the model. And that's the goal is not to, you know, build a lifestyle business, but it's to build something bigger, faster. Mm -hmm. So anyways, I mean, I think I... Um, I guess we could say we're a startup, but we're taking the approach now that we want investors to feel comfortable by saying, wow, you've done this on a relative shoestring budget and you've had profitable months in the first you know, 15 months of existence with all the problems that befall new facilities and with all of the you know, staffing issues that have come up and come and gone. Um, we've been able to show that we're at break even or better. Um, in a, in a small business in a warehouse in LA. So imagine with the right resources, what we could do on more affordable property, um, you know, with more automation, uh, maybe staff with more experience than the ones we currently um, have, although our staff has done awesome. Um, yeah, so I think we're a startup, but I think we're taking the old school approach till now. And then the next is how to intelligently scale and reduce, uh, reduce risk as we scale. All right, we'll get to the future plans in a, in a bit, but I want to step back and talk about you and your background first. I know that when, when we talked to you, I, I learned you went to University of Miami mm -hmm. and they have a, you know, I, I visited the program down there in the, um, the hatchery and they have a very advanced aquaculture program and 
met a lot of the professors. Some have contributed to the advocate over the years, like Dr. Benetti, Daniel Benetti. What, what's something that you learned there that really has helped you in these early stages of building a, an aquaculture business? Oh, good one. Yeah, right. I mean, that was a great experience. I was there for the better part of three years. And I think I learned that more than anything, that aquaculture and our, our facility, the experimental fish hatchery, um, was a place where you kind of had to be a jack of all trades in order yeah. to thrive and to get the most out of your graduate school experience. And that works for me. I, like, you know, started when I was young doing whatever I needed at my dad's landscaping business. Um, so I didn't really realize that that would carry beyond the facility and into the industry, like at the same rate or even more. You know, aquaculture has all this wonderful potential that's starting to be realized in in a more sustainable way, I think, than it's been realized in the past. But um, it's it's also just so multifaceted. So that's probably one of the biggest things. Like you've got to know chemistry. You've got to know how pumps work and, and how they stay sealed and how they hold the prime. You've got to know how to raise money now. You've got to know how to do so many things that, uh, you know, on top of it is animal husbandry. That I think that was the biggest takeaway I got. But then it was networking and, you know, they, they, mm-hmm. it's been so great. We have such a wonderful network from anybody who's been there or been involved with the university. I'm, I'm curious, Steve, because I, I also, I'm going to go off script a little bit for, for a second here. I, I also went to school for aquaculture and I was curious kind of what your takeaway was coming out of a program like that, because the, the program that I did was very production heavy. It was basically every class was how to how to grow this type of fish, how to grow this type of crustacean and, and this type of shellfish. And by the end, I felt like I had a really good grasp on all the different production systems and stuff, but I was still kind of blissfully unaware of the immenseness of the industry. And I learned a lot from getting my job here and uh, just how big the industry is and how it works and everything. Did you have a similar experience to that? I mean... I also started consulting while I was there, so okay. like helping people with live feeds. So I was in I was in Brazil for three months, speaking Portuguese every day. So you were in the industry, you, yeah. I was in the industry and at the same time in graduate school. So right. I would say, in some ways, it was less technical than than some schools might be. You know, mm-hmm. it was less. Uh, and, you know, we had textbooks and, and lectures and all that, but it was less. You know, step one, step two, step three, and it was more. Hey, these are the ways it's being done. Do you want to go do it? you know, go across the street and get your hands dirty or, Hey, somebody needs help in South America with this grouper farm. Um, do you speak Spanish? Okay. You know, and it was more than that, right? I had over a year's experience at that point, but I only went to that school, so I can't compare it, but hopefully that helps answer your question that I think it may not work for everyone. Uh, you know, a lot of people, if you want to be a professor or something, I think maybe it didn't, it, it might not work for every personality either. But for the people who wanted to get in there and really make a difference, that there was just endless opportunity. And that's, kind of help me see my way through the opportunities that I'm, I'm trying to access now. Cool. Yeah. I just, I was just curious, uh, you know, I don't talk to too many people that those programs are very small, so I don't <laughs> talk to too many people that uh, yeah. go through the education uh, route to get through seafood. So I was just curious, sorry to go yeah, I mean, on a little honestly, bit of a tangent. The first, couple, the, the first couple of weeks were like, do you want to hold like a 40 pound cobia that's been anesthetized so we can clean the tank and, and check to see if she's ready to produce eggs. And I'm just like, uh, yeah, I do. <laughs> so I think that's once you get sucked in and then it's like, Hey, you know, that pump's making a funny noise. Like, okay. Is it, is it cool if I take it apart? And you're like, yeah, take it apart, figure out what's wrong, replace the seal. So that was like, it just spoke to me, like my personality. And, um, and then you go back across the street from the hatchery in the lab and, and you're in the classroom learning about like, what does a business plan look like for this? 
So definitely not like deep, deep, deep technical on certain, on a lot of aspects, but a very good overarching uh, entry into the industry. Cool. Yeah. It sounds like you'd be well-prepared taking a course like that. I'm never prepared for what I did. But. <laughs> <laughs> so so Jamie, go, take us back. I, I put us off, off track. That's, so. that's fine. You, 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 he's, you've worked with lots of different types of fish and I know that Miami's got their hands in lots of different types of species, but you chose shrimp. Why shrimp? Yeah. So uh, shrimp, you probably know, is the most commonly eaten seafood in the yes. U.S. And you guys know all the stats. Um, Some of them. <laughs> but uh, basically, it's, it's also a very renewable in the case of anime. Uh, and even tiger prawns, very fast growing, but a little yeah. different density. So for me, it was like, all right, everybody eats this. There's no real uh, scaled premium option. You know, and you look at cattle whether it's for milk or beef, you look at chickens, whether it's for eating or for eggs, you look at pork, you know, you heritage pork, like there is a scaling option that wasn't really there maybe 15, 20, 10 years ago in some cases um, that people are willing to pay for in every grocery store. And so, you know, you looked at that and, and it's renewable in that you can, you can grow it. Um, you can grow it in a lot of different ways and you can grow it in a short amount of time. I mean, out here we see spot prawn, which is, and these are technically a prawn, but um, spot prawns get a high market price. You know, right now they're about $50 a pound, can sell them live, but they're, you know, three to six years old. So I'm not saying it's a terrible fishery and we shouldn't touch it. It's just a very limited, very like kind of luxurious fishery that I hope sustains. Uh, but it's just like, that's not something we should farm three to six years old, you know, uh, or there's. There's other things that need a lot of space. You know, freshwater prawns are really interesting and they're being farmed, but you need a lot of space. These big old claws. And um, I think to be efficient and scale something to find out, like, what's the potential? Of it? If we can get the cost down, how, how much of the market could we, could we take, take on? Um, and how much change could we make in terms of how we interact with our environment? That's all, that's all for us to find out. But I thought shrimp was the best opportunity, the biggest market kind of low-hanging fruit it does have a lot of ecological problems when you look at the typical fishing for shrimp and the typical farming of shrimp and there's no denying that typically you know not every case but typically it's been very very destructive so that's why i started with shrimp great can i ask i want to ask about the business the the facility again please, so please, you, yeah. uh, your facility is in downey i believe that's the name of the town it's tw about 20 miles yep. south of downtown la i'm assuming this is in a, a, a unused building or like a you're repurposing it. What, what was this facility before? Yeah. So we're in Downey, which I had never heard of until I <laughs> looked at the property. Um, we had a building in Long Beach kind of fell through the week the pandemic hit. Right. Mm -hmm. So the seafood distributor was going to invest by giving me free rent in his old processing building. And wow. basically the first two cases hit, shut down things. And next thing you know, um, I was out on my butt with so equipment coming from Europe. <laughs> yeah. So we had to pivot. So I looked at like 20 properties, but Nobody would even meet me. So this was one of the, because of the pandemic. So this is one of the only realtors that would meet me. And um, yeah, looked at this place in Downey, uh, which is maybe you know, like eight or 10 miles inland from Long Beach and just south of downtown LA. Uh, this was, this building, half of it was built in the 50s. Half of it was built in the 60s. It's got about 20 foot ceilings on average, but they're arched and curved. And you couldn't build a building like this these days. Um, wooden trusses. But Basically, it was originally part of the space program, which is kind of cool. Um, so it was building accessories, I'm told, for space capsules. Um, and then all these years later, about 15 years ago, the city of Downey uh, in the park next door to us 
built a space museum. And so one of the capsules is actually back inside where it was built. So back here in Downey. Um, the rest of the buildings in South Downey that used to be the space program have been demolished and turned into shopping malls. Uh, and there's just a handful of us left. So that's what the building is. Um, right before we moved in, it was a junkyard of some absolute ungodly, <laughs> terrible state. And I left with tears in my eyes on day one. And I don't generally cry, but I was just like, how am I going to turn this into what it needs to be? Um, one, one, day was, <laughs> one day at a time. One day at a time. That's it. So this is a proof of concept facility. And do you, but do you have like maybe a, permanent plan to like hold on to it long term or because i i've learned yeah. that you you want to expand and move but does that mean that you're going to stay there no so this has taken a while and a good amount of money to get up and going and we're absolutely going to keep it we've got five-year leases okay you know with a typical uh couple percent increase in, in rent so we don't love that because we're already paying more than a farmer should pay by a lot um but it has such utility in terms of getting attention um, and getting us a chance to tell our story and other aqua farmers stories to some degree. So I just had a tour with chefs that ran over because their questions were just so, they, they were like little kids. They're just right. so intense. So it's Monday, they have a slow day, they drive 30 minutes and they're here. The power of that has allowed me to get some of the best chefs in LA into this building. Wow. Once they see the process and they learn about aquaculture, like, I mean, half of the mission is already achieved. If we put our first farm out in the middle of nowhere, I felt personally that, you know, we're going to have to spend a lot more on marketing and our bag's going to have to look pretty and we're going to have to hope that people care. I don't know why they would care if they've never seen it and it's not really local. So this was the step. We will keep it running. I think it does also offer us a really incredible advantage over someone who might just be popping up a, you know, multi, you know, 20, 30, 50, $100 million building from a benchtop scale is that we can train all our future employees here. So future employees will come here and they'll work for you know anywhere from two weeks to six months before they move on to the next farm, um, or maybe they start their own in a joint venture. So having this as a teaching tool, as a demonstration tool, and as a self-sustaining business that makes more than it spends each month, um, we have no reason to shut it down, but probably, you know, probably in the next three to eight years, we'll, we'll, we'll mothball this one and we'll be already running with the next farms. Can you talk to me a little bit about the uh, the the chef tours? I know you just were finishing one up right before you got on the call with us, so uh, it's you know top of mind, I'm sure. Just kind of what goes into that. I think that's something that a lot of other farmers may you know they may not have thought of and and may want to implement in their what they do too. I'm just curious, kind of what those are all about. Yeah, so you know biosecurity is the name of the game, right? You got to be really careful, especially right. traditional farms where you have similar farmers nearby. In our case, you know it's an isolated building. We we use drinking water. Um, we recycle over 99% of it, and then we discharge a little bit into the county sewer, and they monitor us. So pretty much closed in that way. And the avenues for disease to enter the facility are pretty much your seed stock or your guests. So it's it's a little bit of a risk, admittedly. But again, it's calculated risk because I think it's important for the first facility to teach people. So what we do is, you know, we, we have no marketing, no sales. I, I'm the sales guy and I do the marketing at this point, which is just like Instagram. But uh, we get a lot of inquiries through the website and they say, hey, you know, I've heard about your product. Or I had it at this restaurant. I want to come by. And then I talk to them about it. I try to make sure that they're serious. They understand, you know, what it costs. And then they'll come by for 45 minutes to an hour. And they, you know, I'll show them a little bit of the technology, you know, no, no pictures. But then I'll show them the, the prawns and let them get, pretty familiar with the whole concept and ask all their questions. 
um, it just so happened that everybody loved the tours and uh, the last chefs just, just was like, there was no stopping. It was just like question, 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 question. Oh my God, mm-hmm. this is so cool. And so I think once you get them bought into the mission, the beauty of this whole thing is like, however much savings we're, we're having environmentally, which we're still in the process of calculating and I'd rather calculate it at the next farm. Um, these people are all going to contribute to it and it's only going to get as big as they're willing to push it because we're not going to be cheaper than than cheap cheapest commodity shrimp like oh, it's just yeah. right right that's, that's how we got to be commodity is by finding ways to do it less and less expensive um so these folks need to like believe in it and they need to trust it and they need to be empowered and that's what i think it's most about is empowering them to go out and say like oh what'd you do on your day off like wow i saw this thing it's crazy this guy's nuts but they're actually doing it and to you guys on an aquaculture podcast with an education in aquaculture it's not you know it's not that crazy but to the average person on the street, it's totally bizarre. Yeah. And that's mm-hmm. what we need to bridge that gap somehow. And so in summary, while it comes at some risk to let people into your facility, you know, we make them change their boots and we make them clean their hands and keep their hands behind their backs. It definitely is still a risk. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no hair net, but we should probably. <laughs> but um, I think it's powerful. And I think for us, it's, uh, it's worth the risk right now to build this, build this story. So I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. You, you mentioned something about a premium price, but you, you, you're proving you're proving that this system works. You can farm shrimp on land, but you're proving also we we spoke about this in Boston that shrimp can indeed command like a premium price. It can shed the commodity label a little bit. That like a craft shrimp, so to speak. <laughs> um, it's sort of similar. Like I, I'm bringing brings to mind like the beer market, like. Here in Maine, uh, well, but we're in New Hampshire technically right now. But well, yeah, Maine and New Hampshire are both kind of like the capitals heavy. of, oh, of yeah. craft breweries right now. There's so many, and like there's probably like twenty in, in my town alone. But you know the the you know the the major produced beer does does well. You know also, mm-hmm. you, do you think shrimp can really exist in that craft space? Yeah, no, it's really funny because I've made dozens of investor decks at this point, and my first deck had exactly this comparison and I'm not even, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I even talked about Sam Adams. I used to live in Portsmouth. Um, oh, really? And oh, so, nice. yeah, my, my uncle started with my grandfather, Spinny Creek shellfish just across the bridge. That's right. LA. I remember we talked about that. That's right. Yeah. So anyways, yeah. I mean, and I've seen the, the breweries in San Diego. It's crazy. I mean, there were 15 years ago, there was less than a, less than 50, probably uh, something like that. And now there's 200 um, ways. <laughs> now there's 201. Actually, they just gained one as we were talking. <laughs> Bad joke, but you get the point. Um, no, it's funny. That was in my deck. Like, I was like, hey, look, you think, you know, when Sam Adams was started, they, which is not really craft anymore by scale, but no. they were different. It was a darker beer. It was more expensive. It was a small batch. And they were going to places and it's like, hey, whoever pays for my halogen sign outside, says Miller or, or Bud, I sell Miller, Miller Light, and uh, that's it. <laughs> maybe Miller Genuine Draft or whatever else there is, High Life. But I went through the same discussion of like, why not? Like, well, then investors want to know, but how big is the market? And that's still the question today. They want, how big is it? And I can say, what do you tell them? I can can say, hey, by comparison, it's bigger than this. And this translates to, if you get to a price of say, you know, one and a half times the, the higher end commodity prawn, you know, you you could say like by comparison, pork, beef, eggs, those, some of those are double and even triple the price of the commodity kind of base 
mm-hmm. version. So I said, look, if we conservatively can get to one and a half times the price of your commodity prawns, then the, the market's got to be at least one to two percent. And the comparison I use for that is beef. So if you look at um, you have prime choice and select beef, if you look at prime beef, it has no problem selling. Chefs, you know, pretty much fight over it. It's it's about double the price of the lowest ranked, which I think is select. Um, and it's about prime makes up two percent of the beef on the market. So if you use that comparison and you say, could a a prime quality, fresh, no preservative, or you know, flash frozen, uh, really high quality, lower environmental footprint prawn. Could that be um, marketed and sold to the tune of two percent of the U.S. industry? Maybe, but mm. if it could, two percent at fifteen dollars a pound would be um, something like six hundred and forty million dollars. So then I tell the investors, like, is that something mm-hmm. worth pursuing? <laughs> yeah. And so I think that's. And my answer, not to be a wise guy, but like literally just to logically process like you what could tell the market be? You, you can tell you've done this before. <laughs> yeah, I sound like a salesman now. I'm a pretty bad salesman, actually. I just, I'm, I've been living this uh, for three three years or four years. Well, keep keep the hat on for a second, the sales hat. What's, just give us your outlook on the shrimp business. Like, here you are, you've got a solution, but does this industry need fixing? And and is that how, is that how you approach it? Like, this is a solution to a problem or is this is just a new way to bring like production closer to home? What, what do you, what, what, what answer is closer to the truth? That's a really good question. There's a lot of, a lot of good questions. I'm stoked to answer that one. I think if you look at the climate crisis and you look at the solutions, I think seafood's way behind in the, the willingness to make drastic change or the ability to make drastic change. So there are a lot of good farmers in the world. In every country that's farming shrimp, you have people who believe in not using antibiotics. You have people who you know, believe in, in trying to sell to their local markets as much as they can. So, you know, I want to be careful not to throw the whole industry under the bus, but then people will say, you're doing it anyway, which is fine. But, um, like, this is about the mission, and it's about changing quickly. I mean, in California, we just got historic rain for three or four months. Mm. Uh, my father's business, the trees are going insane in New York because it's 90 degrees, and it was 40 degrees forever, and now it's in two days, been 90, 88, and 81. So like, I think I don't have to go on. Like, Clearly, the weather's gone crazy. Clearly, there's a lot of carbon in the atmosphere. And it's cool to have a startup to invent a robot that flies up in the air and harvested carbon. And, I mean, that's all worthwhile and cool. But like, we have an answer looking us straight in the face to just let the mangroves go back to being mangroves. And that's use spaces that are non-virgin spaces like this one, or in climates that are you know, they've got some water, they've got energy, uh, they're near enough to big markets. And, but those climates aren't, aren't going to sequester a ton of carbon. Um, the lungs of the earth has been, we've, we've cut out one of the lungs of the earth in, since 1980. And shrimp farming, I hate to say it, everybody, but it has a tangible, visible, you can use satellite imagery. Yeah. It has left a mark. And that's not to say every farmer, and there are programs now, particularly in Vietnam, where they're letting they're, they're kind of mandating that some mangroves go back and a certain percent of your farm must have tree coverage. And I think that's great. I just think it's too slow. Um, I wish it the best. I support it. But meanwhile, we are here. People like cool stories, but they also love shrimp. They like eating healthier. So look, there's a range of preservatives used in the industry. And I won't get into that right now unless you want me to, but there's a range of preservatives. Like what if we just don't use any preservatives? Probably that would be better for sure. So 
we're just going to utilize the wonderful freezer technology that's been developed over the decades. Um, and we're going to scale that way. So hopefully that kind of answers the question, but I think there's a lot of good stuff going on, but it does definitely raise my blood pressure when I hear sustainable shrimp because there really isn't any shrimp that I know of that we can do in perpetuity and still have shrimp. Everything is either there's, there's bycatch, there's uh, you know large carbon footprint due to shipping or fuel use or whatever, and we're not perfect, right? We have a long way to go. But simply by using old spaces and farming at a much higher density safely for the animals, right, through the technology, mm-hmm. you, can, you, you can utilize 30 times less space than, than a really successful outdoor farm, maybe 100 times less space than an average or a below average farm. So wouldn't that be a better way to, to sort of get to the point where you can compete at price and then allow those mangrove habitats to, to regenerate and start, if there's any hope for us, start taking that carbon out of the atmosphere and sequestering it for a long time. So you, you can tell I get fired up. Like it, it really <laughs> is about the mission. Yeah. But now forget all of what I just said. If the shrimp doesn't taste good, arrive on time and be at a price that someone will pay for, then none of it matters. So that's my daily struggle. So you, you just set me up really well um, talking about the smaller footprint and smaller space because I want to, like I said, I went to school for this too and I learned a lot about recirculating systems and, and building different types of systems. And I'm a fish nerd. There's a lot of fish nerds that listen to this podcast. A lot of fish nerds that listen, that read the uh, the advocate. And write it. And, and write it. <laughs> That's true. And we like to get into the weeds and I want to get a little bit technical because I love kind of the engineering side of things when it comes to these systems. I, I would love for you to walk us through your indoor system. The first thing when Jamie introduced this topic to me, the first thing I, I said, oh, is it a bioflock system? Because that's just kind of what I assumed when, I, when he said indoor shrimp. He said, no, this is a clear water system. So now I need to know about the system. <laughs> so <laughs> I'd love it if you could kind of walk us through quick what your system is like, how it's set up and kind of how it works. Uh, and then why that, why you made those decisions to do it that way? Yeah, no, that's a, obviously a great <clears throat> question and like beyond intuitive. That's an educated question to be asking. I will answer it and I'll answer it a little bit higher up than probably you would love. Um, but uh, <laughs> no, no, I'd be happy to talk us. to you offline. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have investors, you know, and we have uh, more, more importantly than anything, it's not about not wanting to share. And I get accused of that. People yeah. call me and they say, tell me how to set up the farm. I want to know everything. They got their pen ready. And I'm just like, no, of course not. It's kind of no, disrespectful right. because we've put like 25 years into this. Not not you guys, but I mean, that's just how it's been. But also I'll, put, like, I'll um, put my pen down then. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 it's all good. No, we, we have a, we, it's like I could give you pictures of the whole thing and good luck because there's a hundred secrets. Any any good person, aquaculture, aquaculturist who's killed animals knows like there's a hundred secrets going on here. And if you don't get them all right, you know, good luck. And the other thing is like, I feel responsibility to hold on to this until, until we know we can get it right and help people right. succeed with it. And at that point, which is very soon, you know, joint ventures start to make sense because we don't want to see more piles of drum filter. I mean, I got access to, you know, last week I got emails about I'm buying brand new uh, foam fractionators. I'm buying brand new pumps that people made an investment, couldn't grow the shrimp, couldn't sell the shrimp, goes bust. I mean, over and over. So that's part of the reason is a little intro. I am going to answer the question, but part of it is like, <laughs> I'm not trying to, and we're not trying to just be like selfish because it's true that will you'll you'll not do well you know this is an industry built on collaboration mm-hmm. but right now it's time to like keep keep doing what we're doing scale it up show that it can work and then sort of disseminate it or you know possibly patent it maybe not whatever um so to answer your question though describe my system so 
we have a farm with a nursery, a grow out system. Uh, it's kind of an intermediate, intermediate nursery and a full on grow out system. Uh, so we don't have a hatchery and that's been kicking our butt. Uh, maybe we'll talk about it in a minute. Mm -hmm. Um, but we do uh, intermediate grow out when we do have the seed stock available. So we hold them in a bioflock system. Um, and they do really well at a young age and a fairly low density. They grow great. You know, nothing wrong with a bioflock product. Um, but we just feel that, that uh, Clearwater gives us an element of control uh, mm. that, you know, RAS fish farmers know really well. And if you said to a fish farmer who grows, you know, indoor trout or salmon, like, hey, you know, here, you're not going to try to keep the water clear. Okay. Good luck. And right, fish are different than shrimp. They're different animals, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm playing with this a little bit, but it's hard. They would say, no, like, get out of here. I, I need to clear up the water. I need to be measuring as many things as possible and automate as many of those measurements. And, and I want valves opening and closing. I want to be titrating in certain, you know, sodium, uh, sodium carbonate, uh, whatever it is, right? Like, this is the way that it's done. But shrimp has just been like, yeah, but you can get started with a pole barn and a couple of Walmart tanks, and there's nothing wrong with that. Back to your question, Jamie, about craft. Like, yeah. I think it's great that I have a friend who farms shrimp in Kentucky in a similar setup. I have, I think it's great. I'm, I'm all in support of this craft, like pop it up here, pop it up there, sell it for what you can. Maybe it's an additional crop. You also grow pigs or you grow something else, like all in favor. But at the same time, if we're going to commercialize this and make any impact on, hey, incentivizing people to stop using mangroves so much, then we've got to do it at scale. And to do it at scale and make money, you've got to do it at density. And Bioflot just doesn't give us the control that a, that a higher density system does. So uh, maybe other people are better at Bioflot. Maybe, you know, Bioflot's the way. And it's definitely lower capital costs. Um, it's lower cost to operate. Not as low as people like to say sometimes. You still have to heat the water. You still have to aerate the water, which is pretty inefficient with blowers typically. But it's... um. It's, yeah, it's a different different ways to skin a cat. We just feel really confident in this way because of the results we're getting. Um, if you have more questions about that, I'd be happy to answer more. I just won't go into like what type of filter and step one, two, three, four. Yeah, we can save that for another time. But you know, you talked about a lot of gut that goes into this. There's a lot that goes into this. But aside from you know water and power, which you can get virtually anywhere, so you could farm shrimp virtually anywhere. You do need two main inputs. Like there's the feed. What are you going to feed the shrimp? Uh, but most importantly is the shrimp themselves. So like most grow-out facilities, you've, you've got to secure post-larvae to stock your farm. You just mentioned you're operating without a hatchery right now. So just talk about the challenges you have regarding those two inputs, feed and seed. Yeah, cool. So I'll start with seed stock. Um, that's been a big one because, and the people who said, you're crazy, I'm not investing because you're starting in a very expensive area mm. and your overhead is higher than it needs to be. You know, you could do this, like you said, anywhere. So why not do it in the cheapest possible place? Mm -hmm. To those people, I would say, you know, we're fine and I'm confident in my decision until the seed stock industry falls apart for, you know, weeks or months or a batch comes in and is too cold because the airline didn't handle it properly or, mm. you know, mistakes happen. Um, then we go a month with no shrimp to sell. And that's, you know, 60 or more thousand dollars lost. <laughs> so at that moment, when that happens, I tell those investors who didn't invest, eh, you're right, fair enough. But overall, yeah, seed stock has been a, a real challenge. And we knew it was. I mean, that was the number one risk when we pitched investors back when we were talking about this in the brewery model, right? 
we said, you know, we can get seed stock. There's three or four players back then. You know, SIS was selling, um, had been selling for a long time. Um, there were there were a few players that were about to come out. There was one in California that you know, had secured funding. They had already started before we did. Um, they were ready to go. They had some PLs, and that was going to be our local partner. And then they just, you know, they didn't make it. SIS stopped selling. Others have come in their place. So it's just this very chicken and egg. Uh, volatile industry it's just not a great business because there's no chicken there's no people <laughs> growing massive amounts of shrimp that need high quality seed stock there's this little craft guy here there's one here and you know hey if i get it in march great if i don't get my seed until april or may like okay i'll make it work that that kills us we're done out of business we are mm-hmm. a shrimp farming business we grow shrimp and bacteria that's it so for us not having uh, and and because they grow so fast the crop you need to be stocking frequently you know, you, with a with a fish, say, you know, a, a salmon that takes over two years or a branzino that takes a year and a half or a trout even, I guess, like you could probably be like, eh, I could feed them a little less and slow them down. I could feed them a little more and try to, you know, maybe I can warm up the water and get them to grow a little faster. So you can kind of smooth out the unevenness if you have seed supply issues. For prawns, like if you want to supply your top restaurants in LA every week with the same sizes, you got to have a very frequent stocking. And so that's been hard for us. Um, you know, that, that said, we've got some great partners coming in that have stepped up and stepped into this, the U.S. industry and multiple. Um, and it's a small world, so some of us know each other. And it's just been cool to see that um, everybody wants this to happen. And the feedstock suppliers that have kind of appeared out of nowhere to save us from the, the four or five we had that, have, that are no longer supplying, um, they've kept us in the game. Uh, that being said, you know, we're looking to get this next farm project going really soon. And we're also looking at a joint venture. Um, but, but really the key is getting our own hatchery going. We're going to, we're not getting into the broodstock business. I worked in the broodstock business in Thailand for a while and it is a business unto itself and it's very important to get the right genetics. And yeah, we're, we're not interested in genetics. We're not interested in stealing anybody's genetics. We want to buy breeders and we want to buy PLs as well. Um, and we, we just want to go about it that way because you know, any farm in the world, whether you're in India, or Indonesia, wherever, they either have a hatchery in their farm or they have a, a community kind of co-op hatchery that supplies, uh, you know, multiple farms. And they have different ways of paying into the systems. I'm sure you guys know about it. But basically, like, we have nothing. We just have guys that sell broodstock to, to other countries primarily. And then they say, well, you know, hey, we're growing them anyway. We'll grow some PLs for you. And it's wonderful. And I cannot be grateful enough. But it's also very frustrating as a small business because you're like, hey, I know this isn't a big business for you, but could you send us a few boxes? Like you're always kind of begging for product. And um, hmm, interesting. And and I think that it is the chicken or the egg. And I hope that our part in this is to scale. And there's others trying to scale. And I know there's a lot more PLs being made in the U.S. this year than there have been in a long time. So that's exciting for others that are trying to do some, some grow out. But I hope that we can continue to scale and scale as quickly as we're able so that these genetic people who have taken a risk to come into the United States and try to build a domestic industry are rewarded for their risk. And it's like, Hey, look, we can buy X number of pieces of broodstock a week. We can't, or a month, we can buy this many PLs a week. And hopefully, cause somebody has got to go first. Hopefully we can get big enough to start using more, more PLs and encourage that industry to grow. 
Yeah, let, let, let's talk about that scaling a little bit. Just to wrap up, we're getting a little bit close to time, but I want to talk about some of your expansion plans. You know, we know that this facility, like you said, is originally like a proof of concept kind of facility. And you talked about the five to eight year plan down the road. Let, let's talk about your expansion plans for a couple commercial facilities. Do you have any idea or can you share any information about kind of where they're going to be or when you're going to be able to announce these new locations or anything like that? Yeah, so we're looking in the Southwest. So we've built this kind of market with $0 spent on marketing. There's a lot of demand all the way up and down the West Coast and a little bit inland as well. Um, so we're going to site the next farm out, out here. I would say most likely it'll be in California. Uh, we're looking at a few regions right now, uh, and we're starting to get into the point where we're going to look at properties. So we don't have the site yet. Um, regards to the funding, you know, we just made this decision recently because I was kind of sitting here just thinking, like, what more do we have to prove here? Like, we know what the challenges are. Technically, we've had a couple of little challenges, but it's overall, you know, our my partner, Doug Ernst, has, has been in charge of the engineering and really nailed it. Like, really nailed it. Like, uh, I mean, we've we've already hit our target density pretty much um, multiple times. We've we've harvested with with the supply issues we've had. We've still managed to harvest uh, at you know three, four kilos more than the, the best bioflock farms that I've heard of um, per square meter. So we've hit the commercial density we want. We've shown that the market is hungry for this at a price that's higher than I had in my original business plan. Um, you know, and that price will come down as we scale, of course. But we've kind of shown like, what else are we going to do in this old building that we've kind of put together with some coat hangers and some various other things? Um, we spared no expense on our equipment that runs the system. But the, the building itself is kind of an old building. So I think once I realized that, I said, all right, let's start raising the funds. So where we are now is uh, having some cups of coffee with people. We're just starting to get out there. So it's good timing to, to get out there and start to tell our story. Uh, we're looking at, you know, probably a $30 million fundraise. Um, we'd like to, I mean, a, a rough goal would be to break ground in 2024, but I'm not going to give you the, as you pointed out, Jamie, I'm pretty direct. I'm not going to give you the like, oh, yeah, we'll have it done by the end of the year. I mean, that's what I tell my fiance. But I, yeah, we'll break ground in 2024. We can only go as fast as the funding and uh, finding the land and getting the permitting done are possible. But simultaneously, I've turned down like many dozens of offers to, you know, get engage on a joint venture and share the technology because it's ready, but it's ready under our guidance. We still mm. need to make, you know, take it from... If this is an iPhone 3.0 and the current one's an iPhone 15, like we'd like to get this to an iPhone 7 or 8 before we let anybody else make mistakes on our stuff. So um, we are we are considering one joint venture. So that's the second project. Um, we're looking at one joint venture. I, I can't say where it is yet, but it's in North America. Uh, and we're looking at a farm like similar size to this one, a little bit bigger than this one, but it's kind of going to be in an area that really needs this product and doesn't have it. So I'll leave you tantalized hopefully <laughs> that, well that was the promise right for uh, land-based aquaculture all along was that it's produced in close proximity to the marketplace that would consume it mm -hmm. so right uh, and it's just if we can get a level of automation and like cost-effective production and really what it is with us is like consistency you've got to sell your product every week that's what mm -hmm. i believe that this is going to sustain um because chefs aren't you know chefs are just people with a busy job with 10 or 15 proteins to manage and 30 or 40 vegetables and all the people running in and out. And they can't be, you know, it's nice right now because it's so new and cool that they treat us with this extra sort of forgiveness, but we need to be professionals as an aquaculture industry and be like, 
here's your product. It's the same size as it was last week. It's the same flavor. The color is the same. And that's where I want to help people get to, whether they're a smaller farm or, you know, a bigger farm like the one we're going to build next. Awesome. Well, that sounds like a good place to stop. I wanted to thank you for joining us uh, on this interview. This is great. We're going to have a, this is the first time we're going to have a podcast interview and an article coming on the same exact time. So you're kind of a guinea pig for us, Steve. Pretty cool. cool. Before we let you go, Steve, um, if anybody that's listening wants to get in contact with you for any reason, what is the best way for them to do that? Uh, yeah, so we've got a, a decent little website, um, transparencyfarm.com, uh, and it's transparent C, like the ocean. So transparent with a T and then S-E-A-F-A-R-M.com. Um, and you can email through there if you've got any inquiries. Uh, you can sign up for the newsletter. And, you know, we do tours once or twice a month, or sorry, about once a month. Um, but yeah, we'll hit you with a couple of newsletters. And, and uh, I actually get all the messages from the website. So you can find me there. Good stuff. Well, Jamie, you got anything else? No, that's it. Thanks again, Steve. I'd love to have you on. And this is a really important discussion we're having. Maybe not this particular one, but like land-based aquaculture in general, I think it really has a big future in the United States. And I'm glad to talk to someone who's bringing the most popular seafood product to the Los Angeles market. For sure. Well, to all of our listeners, thank you so much for listening and we will talk to you next time. (laughs) 